Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. It was another busy year in cybersecurity we just concluded. Federal agencies got behind a new national cyber strategy, but also had to grapple with ever-evolving cyber threats. And artificial intelligence also posed some new risks. Here to talk about all of that and more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, as always, the year produced a cavalcade of cybersecurity headlines. What are some of the highlights of the last year? Well, naturally, the new national cyber strategy was the the big one for federal folks, for sure. Uh, That was released by the White House back in March. And the the big thing with that strategy is it really uh, aims to, quote unquote, rebalance the responsibility for managing security risks from sort of customers to big technology manufacturers, big tech companies. And then it also stakes out an effort to establish cybersecurity regulations for critical infrastructure, which is a a big shift from kind of the voluntary public-private partnership model. So in June, the White House followed that strategy up with a big implementation plan laying out 65 specific initiatives agencies will take to carry out the strategy. There's a lot in the works here across the federal government when it comes to carrying out different aspects of that strategy already. Yes, strategy with 65 jobs to do. That sounds like kind of something that gets to be ponderous after a while. Any initial activity outputs yet from the strategy, or is it too early to tell? There have been a couple things so far. One is that the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has been putting together secure by design guidance that really is aimed at telling technology manufacturers how they can make more secure products from the get-go instead of putting a product out there and then it's up to the customer to constantly patch and make sure they have multi-factor authentication turned on and different things like that. Another one that Jim Richberg, he's Fortinet's head of cyber policy, pointed out to me, the Federal Communications Commission has come out with its cyber labeling program for smart devices. So when folks buy a refrigerator or something like that that has software in it because everything is software and is digital nowadays, they can see how secure it might be based on the label. So those are a few things that have already happened. And there will be more, more is expected in 2024. You know, in looking at the ads for toys for the just concluded Christmas season, a lot of them are Internet connected. Things that talk back to children and answer things. These are not like the old toys where everything was on essentially a record inside that toy, but it's reaching out to the Internet. They're like a bunch of soft, cuddly Alexas, you know, and therefore they're spying devices. They could be listening in when you're yelling at the dog or whatever. So that's the kind of thing I think people see emerging. This ubiquitous listening in Internet everywhere we go is kind of the new cyber threat. And threats, those changed. What emerged in the past year We had Log4j the year before that. The big one that came out in 2023 that people, cyber experts specifically highlighted was in May, CISA and some other government agencies, the National Security Agency issued what was a pretty remarkable cyber advisory. That was that People's Republic of China related cyber actors had infiltrated the networks of U.S. critical infrastructure, and they were doing so by, quote unquote, living off the land using built-in network administration tools to evade detection. That, folks said, will have implications for government and the private sector for years to come in terms of how they have to secure themselves, constantly monitor their networks. It came out later on that China 
reportedly may be infiltrating critical infrastructure to not just spy on on folks, but potentially disrupt it down the lines. It's things like water systems. So that marks a shift in kind of the cyber threat landscape here this year from espionage to more active attacks. And that's something that a lot of experts pointed to me as, as a big shift in 2023. Right. It seems like people are less reluctant to point out what they know to be the source of the problems, such as China. There used to be a little bit of reticence about, well, we don't know, we can't attribute, but we can attribute. And now they're starting to say it out loud. Yeah, that's right. There's certainly, you know, a lot more attribution in the advisories that we see coming out. It's it's not as obscure and vague as maybe it used to be. And what about specific threats to federal agencies? They've got their own fish to fry. Yeah. Well, you know, there were a couple big cyber high-profile cyber attacks that affected federal agencies in 2023. One was the MoveIt breach. MoveIt, the file transfer system, was breached over Memorial Day weekend, what was potentially the biggest ransomware attack ever. And that ensnared the data of several federal agencies, including the Energy Department and the Department of Health and Human Services. They they used the MoveIt application. And this wasn't considered necessarily a high-impact breach that affected federal operations, but it was a big one nonetheless. The other one to point out was suspected Chinese hackers, again, were able to infiltrate Microsoft's cloud-based email systems to steal emails sent by Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and other high-level federal officials. That was a big deal that came out back over the summer. It's now being reviewed by DHS's Cyber Safety Review Board as part of a broader review of cloud uh, cybersecurity. So, you know, that that's going to be a big report that comes out next year. And on the regulatory front, you know, there was the executive order, but that goes back now to what, 2021, which people are citing as kind of the Bible for what agencies and by extension industry should be doing. But there is a push now for more cyber regulations. Give us the review of that front. Yeah, the national cyber strategy, as we mentioned, envisions more cyber regulations, specifically for critical infrastructure. But really, one of the big actions that came out this year was from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, They probably made the most noise on the regulatory front in 2023. First, the SEC issued new cyber rules for publicly traded companies. Those rules received a lot of backlash from industry and some members of Congress, but they actually still went into effect earlier in December. And so that requires publicly traded companies to do things like disclose when they have a material cyber incident. So those rules are in effect. That's a a big deal for a lot of corporations out there. And then the SEC also brought legal action against SolarWinds and its chief information security officer over that big hack back in 2020. The SEC is alleging fraud and internal security control failures. That was a big legal action that the SEC has brought forward. In addition to the regulations, that now has a lot of companies thinking a lot harder about cybersecurity. And that's a big point of contention between industry and government is fine. If you want disclosure of cyber incidents and cyber breaches, we'll be glad to do that. But then don't make us liable you know, for lawsuits or for action, say, by the Federal Trade Commission or, as you point out, the SEC, because then, you know, why would you bring your case against yourself to these agencies? So that issue of lawsuits versus disclosure so that everyone can learn that remains a tense spot, doesn't it? That's right. And I think that's another thing that the Biden administration wants to work through is this idea of a legal safe harbor for companies. You know, if they do the right thing, then they shouldn't be punished for being hacked. But what is what is the right thing? How do you get to safe harbor? That's that's a big question. 
Well, the White House doesn't have to worry about industry. They've got to worry about the tort bar. (laughs) It's a big impediment to a lot of these types of things. And finally, we've got to talk about artificial intelligence because that is a big cyber topic in and of itself, the safety of your algorithms and the data. And it also produces a lot of data, which has to be protected. So each way you look at AI, you know, there's a cyber angle to it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's all about data security. There's the potential for some of these models to leak data potentially. And and then, you know, how safe are they to actually use on, you know, more sensitive data. These are all issues agencies have been working through. In October, President Joe Biden issued that big AI executive order that, among many other activities, directs agencies to address the risks of AI, including cybersecurity. In November, CISA issued a new AI roadmap where the agency says it's going to work to ensure AI systems are protected from cyber threats, while also deterring the malicious use of AI capabilities because AI could be used to gen up cyber attacks to write certain code, and, and that could be used in cyber attacks. And at the same time, CISA and other cyber defense uh, organizations see the potential utility of using AI to help defend against cyber attacks, to maybe train people on cybersecurity. So <laughs> AI is interwoven into almost everything these days, and cybersecurity is no different. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And you'll stay on the beat in the coming year, correct? Oh, you bet. Check out all of his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. 
excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency 
And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins, who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.